Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hello and welcome to another episode of NAPO's podcast, Stand Out. I'm your host, Productivity Catalyst, Claire Kumar, and thrilled to have Debbie Stanley joining me. But before you get to hear about Debbie Stanley, I want to do something I should have done on the first episode I hosted, which is thank Sarah Karakayan, who was Stand Out's first host took us through 62 episodes of riveting conversations and did a fabulous job bringing us to over 140,000 downloads. So Sarah, thank you for such a great start. I'll do my best to follow in your great footsteps. Hey, Sarah. (laughs) All right, without further ado, let's get to today's topic. And let me introduce to you our guest, Debbie Stanley. Now, Debbie Stanley is a NAPO member She's been a self-employed organizational consultant since 1997. So that's some time, Debbie. She has degrees in, listen to this, journalism, industrial and organizational psychology, and mental health counseling. This is one educated lady. She enjoys translating eye-gazing rhetoric of her scholarly education into concepts that make sense in everyday life. She's a translator, so look for some great language coming from Debbie. She has been devoted to help music professionals get their act together since moving to the hip and cool town of Austin, Texas in 2012. Welcome, Debbie. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, today we're going to talk about a subject dear to both of us, of which you have considerable expertise, and we're going to be talking about how to work with the population of people who struggle with brain-based conditions. And so I thought, first of all, I'd love you to help expand our understanding of what is a brain-based condition, and is condition the right word? I would also say, is struggle the right word? Often it's not. I think that There's so much that we can reframe around the idea of struggling or suffering with a diagnosis, pathologizing differences in how our minds work, how our brains work, which are two slightly different concepts. The term brain-based condition is a phrase that we came up with as we, we being the instructors and developers of a new track of courses for NAPO, we came up with this phrase of brain-based condition as like a catch-all for the diverse range of phenomena that we're talking about that we can identify in clients when we're working with them as organizers, which something that I perpetually point out is that's not the same as being a clinician. So I am a licensed clinician. Most people in organizing are not. I went into counseling because I was already an organizer and I saw that I could help clients even more if I had more education, and frankly, some letters after my name. So some people would take me seriously. So I have used that as a bridge between the clinical world, the diagnostic world, the treatment world, back into helping organizing professionals, productivity professionals to know how to work with clients who have this non-clinical catch-all phrase that we're using of brain-based conditions, how to work with them safely 
knowledgeably without practicing amateur therapy, without crossing boundaries into practicing amateur medicine and knowing how to communicate with the people who are the clinicians who are also working with those same clients as their patients. I love that. So you're telling us how to work together with the people that do have that depth of knowledge and you've experienced both sides of it. So who better to do that? So can you give me an example of what falls in this brain-based condition or phenomenon? I like, as you called it, give me some examples of who are we talking about and what experiences do they have? Probably the most common example in the organizing world is people with ADHD or those of us who have been working with it for a long time will often just say ADD before they change the name. The people who write the diagnostic manual changed it to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with or without hyperactivity, which isn't confusing at all. So clients who have ADD or ADHD are what we could say overrepresented among organizing clients because disorganization is one of the diagnostic criteria for ADD or ADHD. I wonder if you've noticed if it's not overrepresented in the organizing profession as well, because some of us have come through battling our own challenges, in some cases, challenges, some cases, superpowers, and figuring out how do we get the best out of this brain? And so I don't know if you have a comment on that. I don't know that we have any research on it, but I would say that there's face validity to your observation. I think that there probably are a lot of organizers who got into the field because they developed really fantastic compensatory mechanisms or ways to work around and work with their neurodiversity, their different brain, their ADD brain, and realize that now that they've made it through that storm, they could be helpful to clients who also need to learn better ways to work with their brain, but want to work with an organizer who can empathize with just the fact of being someone who lives with ADD, who lived a life before diagnosis with particularly people who are diagnosed in adulthood who lived with feeling ashamed, feeling like there was something wrong with them for not being able to do these things that appear to come easily to everyone else. And that's another fallacy that we see in organizing when we go from client to client and home to home and office to office. And there are universal challenges that everyone's trying to hide from each other. So one of the things that we can bring to our clients is the normalization of the challenges that they have with disorganization that they're not the only one on the block by far. Wonderful. So ADHD, what else falls in the brain-based condition realm then? We made it intentionally broad because we wanted to be able to look at ways to help people who have any sort of a mental health diagnosis, any sort of a physical condition that can cause changes in brain function. The definition that we came up with for the entire track, of course, was anything that causes ongoing difficulty or challenging differences with cognition, emotion, socialization, or behavior. And in the course that I contributed to that track, I have a long, long list of examples, but I can just rattle off a few more. We said ADHD, learning disabilities, anxiety, depression, any of the autism spectrum disorders, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, even effects from physical conditions like chronic pain or menopause or an off-kilter thyroid gland or now COVID. Now we're hearing about the long-lasting effects for some people of having a COVID brain fog and also life circumstances. So 
sometimes difficulties in emotion, difficulties in cognition, meaning how clearly you can think difficulties in behavior can come from life circumstances, like living in an unstable home. Seeing this in children is probably the easiest way to picture how kids will act out behaviorally when there's something going on in their lives that makes them feel unsafe or unnoticed or unincluded. So all of that falls under this large, large umbrella that we created of brain-based conditions. It can also, let me add one more because this I think is really important. It's not just deficits. High intelligence fits here too. People who are so brilliant that their socialization doesn't proceed exactly the same as other people or as typically as their age would indicate. So people who are really intellectually advanced for their age can have a struggle with fitting in with their peers. We can all think of an example of that. And so that would also be a brain-based condition, but it's not a bad thing to be brilliant. (laughs) I like that on a (laughs) t-shirt. It's not a bad thing to be brilliant. Just like back to the beginning of where we started talking about this with ADHD, hyperfocus is a gift. It is an absolute gift that people with ADHD have. And the trick is to learn how to control it, how to turn it on and off at will. And then it really is a superpower. Well, it makes me think of Peter Shankman's book, Faster Than Normal. And he spoke at a NAPO conference several years ago, brilliant speaker and brilliant entrepreneur and ADHD advocate, lives with it and has a lot of, I like you, what did you say? Compensatory practices. I call them coping skills in my own case. But Peter Shankman's a fantastic example of reframing this ability that you have that brings you superpowers, I call them, and also some struggles sometimes. The one that I want to add to the list is one that I experience. And from the research by Elaine Aaron says that it applies to about 20% of the population. So it's a significant number. And that's sensory processing sensitivity and often called highly sensitive people, which has a bit of a no man wants to be told he's overly sensitive in particular, and women may not appreciate that title too. So actually, Elaine said she would rename it. She could do it all over again. Yeah, unfortunately, there's so much connotation around all of the language that we use. And that's one of the reasons that I'll throw out these big words because they are the accurate words, but I also want to be able to express the concepts in terms that everyone can understand. And so I use a lot of analogies and the sensory processing and sensitivity when people hear that someone is highly sensitive, they think that they're emotionally fragile. That's not what the phrase means. It means that you are physically more in tune with sensory input. So you might be bothered by the sound of another person chewing. You might more easily get a headache from bright lights. You might be more easily distracted by itchy clothing. And none of that means that you might refuse to read a book club book because the paper was too rough. Yes. So sensitivity, visual, auditory, and none of that means that the person is emotionally fragile. But unfortunately, in Western culture, it is pretty common to say, oh, suck it up. Well, so what that it doesn't feel right? What's with this woo-woo stuff? Well, yes, there are people who feel that way. I don't feel that way about my clients. When I teach other organizers and other productivity professionals, I encourage them to not express those kinds of biases, but we will encounter those biases in our clients. And 
this is the heart of the way that our clients have internalized beliefs about their own brain-based conditions, the shame that they feel, the guilt that they feel, the inferiority that they feel because they've internalized messages that there is something wrong with them because they have these differences or these types of diversity. And that is where an organizer can change a person's life by reframing these differences as just differences, not deficiencies. Love it. And so I know that the HSP population is about 20%. Do you have a sense of how many people we're talking about when I know it's fluid because some of these conditions or circumstances will change and you might be in a case where you have a challenge at some point and then it remediates. So do you have any sense of on the population, are we talking a quarter, a third? Do we have any sense of, it's not a small number of people out there. No. And like you said, it's something that can come and go. It can be secondary to another condition. Think about a really tangible example of shingles. If you have shingles, then your skin is going to be so hypersensitive. And when the shingles resolves and your skin sensitivity hopefully will go away. People who have allergies, they can have this hypersensitivity too. So it's a little simplistic for us to talk about any condition in isolation because so often they overlap, they exacerbate one another, and you can't tell which came first. There's a chicken and egg problem with all of it. So to answer your question, no, I don't have an idea of how many of our clients are HSP and how many of our clients are ADD and how many of our clients have depression or have anxiety. But what I do know is that when a person self-identifies as being disorganized, then that is an invitation for us to help them to change in the way that they want to change. And our job is to take their motivation to change, identify specific ways that they can change their environment, change their behavior, and accomplish what they think organized means. Along the way, we might help them to redefine what they think organized means. They might start out thinking that organized means that your house is always magazine beautiful. And by the time we worked with them for a few months, they might realize that, no, actually organized means functional. Yeah, defining that mix of function and fashion is very unique to each client. And it has nothing to do with the organizer's preferences. It's all about tuning in and even helping the client find language to express it. And or even to recognize, often clients don't realize that there are differences that can be articulated between a person who prefers to have everything put away versus a person who prefers to have everything out. And that's a really good example of something where, again, in Western culture, we're told that put away is organized and organized is superior. And people aren't as often taught that you can have a perfectly legitimate organizational system that involves having things out in sight. And it's a visual preference. It's a processing preference. The stuff outs versus the stuff aways. I spend a lot of my time having conversations with couples, with roommates, with work groups who have people of on both sides of that, people who prefer things put away, people who prefer things out and helping them to normalize to one another that neither view is right or wrong. It's just a difference. It's a preference. Sometimes it gets to the level of a need, but nobody's superior or inferior here. I just want to just tap into that point for a second as my cat runs into my closet and causes havoc over there. (laughs) Like they do. Oh, they do. The thought that if you've got two people with 
different preferences. And you've got someone who, from a cognitive perspective, potentially, or emotional perspective, feels that visual chaos is stressful. I call it often a tax on us. It's like it's depleting our energy throughout the day. One of the things I've thought of always for shared spaces, and I want your opinion on this, is that we need to cater to the most sensitive amongst us in shared spaces so that it brings the stress level down and we can create an environment in which as many people as possible can thrive. So I'm thinking of a kindergarten classroom, for example, and you've got 20 to 30 kids who are quite young, four and five, but everything has a spot so that there's an order that's preserved. It may not be all behind closed doors or what have you, but it's everything has a space. And so there's some order to it. What would you say to organizers when they're working with people that have a sensitivity to visual chaos, for example? Well, first thing is, as we know, but we'll say it again, because you and I are veterans, but people are new to the organizing industry. This is something that they need to learn right away. The difference between being a naturally organized person and an organizational or productivity professional is that you can accommodate other people's ways of doing things and you can anticipate other people's ways of thinking. So we need to be able to work with clients whose visual preferences, as the example on the table now, are different from ours. I am a stuff away person by nature, and I live with a stuff out person. And I've worked with clients who are vibrantly stuff out people. And I've been able to create systems for them that when the system is in place and the client is delighted and sitting there looking around and saying, this is exactly what I needed. And in my head, I'm trying to concentrate on keeping a grip on what we're doing because I'm so overstimulated by what I just helped them build that I can barely think. But I did my job because now this person is in their absolute best space for their brain. So when I'm working with people who need to coexist in a space and they have very different preferences or needs, I like your idea of identify who's more sensitive, but at the same time, that can create a competition of well, my needs are more important than yours. So rather than making a blanket decision about an entire space, like the kitchen, everything needs to always be put away in the kitchen because the stuff away person is more sensitive and has a stronger need. But then what if the stuff out person forgets to take their medication because they really need it sitting out by the coffee pot? So in my teaching, we come back to that space of collaboration, of cooperation, of recognizing that neither of you is right or wrong, and you each have a legitimate reason for needing what you need. So in shared spaces, then you work out little ways to compromise. Yes, you can leave one bottle of medication by the coffee pot. No, you can't leave 25 drink bottles by the coffee pot. And it also is valid in a shared environment to have each person have a space where they can do it exactly their way. In my example, my office is exactly my way and my husband's side of the garage is exactly his way. And I just try not to look at it. <laughs> so his work van is exactly his way. I don't have any involvement there unless he asks for my help, which typically doesn't happen because he has his own ways of organizing things and it works out fine. So what I'm always going for when people have differing needs is let's identify 
a space where you can do it exactly your way for each of you. And then let's talk about just the little nitty gritty of how can we compromise in the shared spaces, recognizing that each of us is valid in our preferences and our processing. I love that. And then the collaborative approach is so wonderful. And the example you gave, very real. So thank you for that. Can I add one more thing to that? Often we default to examples that come from residential organizing. And so the example I just gave, you can easily imagine it in a home. It can get trickier in a work environment. I have been in the position of advocating to the boss on behalf of the workers for collaboration and cooperation around these differences. I'm thinking of an engineering firm where I was brought in to rehabilitate an employee. And I'll tell you, just between you, me, and all the organizers listening, often when I'm called to fix some employee, I'll find out that that employee is being scapegoated because they do have some sort of neurodiversity in how they work. And I'm expected to come in and make them toe the line. And usually what ends up happening is instead I advocate for them to the boss to give them a little bit more breathing room so they can do their job, hitting their core competencies, but doing it in the way that works for them. So in a little inclusivity, a little inclusivity, a little empathy for people having different ways of working, different ways of being effective. So in this engineering firm, the rule in the office was everybody had to put everything away from their desk before they left for the night. So the boss wanted to be able to walk through and see empty desks in this typical cubicle farm. And I'll never forget this engineer who his job had to do with creating mock-ups and models of things. And so by four o'clock, he had this model that he was really inspired by and he was making great progress on thinking it through and he had to partially disassemble it and stick it in a drawer. Now, come on. I mean, how is that productive? So being the outside consultant who honestly is not worried about getting fired, I can speak truth to power. I can go to the boss and say privately, look, man, I'm going to tell you straight, you were making it really difficult for some of your employees to do good work for you. And I am not going to call you out in front of them, but I'm going to tell you right now here in this office in private, you really ought to expand your thinking and allow for some diversity of operation here. And I can help this person to hit all their deliverables and be effective if you will grant me the space to do it without a rule like clear your desk by five o'clock every day. This applies for sure in the workplace in terms of, I mean, yeah, cubicle farm used to be the same thing. And no matter whether you were a graphic designer and looking at big print layouts, you had the same space as someone who was completely just working on a computer screen. So looking at what the job requires to drive the space that you need and the furniture and so on is really powerful. I love that you're suggesting that the checking of blind spots and biases that people bring. And I would say it extends a lot to parents and their kids too. Parents have a way of doing things and they just think my kid should just do it this way. And if we slow down and observe what our kids' tendencies are, they may have genius ways of doing things that we can get out of our own belief that our own way of doing it is great, then we can embrace it. My story with my son comes to mind. Of course, he tried the, can I live out of my laundry basket for some time and then realize that that wasn't a great strategy. And I remember putting laundry away. And in the winter, when my skin would get dry, I hated turning clothes that were inside out back the right way. 
So I just said, you know what, garbage in, garbage out. That's whatever comes in. And I'm not going to worry about how it comes out. It's just going to get back in your laundry basket for you to fold and put away or hang or whatever. So my son decided he liked to hang his t-shirts and he would hang them inside out. And then when he would put them on, he would devise a different way of putting them on. So as he put it on, he would flip it. So it would be outside out. And I remember somebody coming over and going, ah, doesn't that closet stress you out with all the inside out t-shirts hanging there? And I said, you know what? I respect that he's figured out how he wants to do this. And he's, I would say a minimalist in terms of effort. How little can I do? I think would be on his t-shirt and he's going to be an incredible designer. If he can take his brain and apply it to business process later, how elegant is his solution going to be? Yeah. He's got systems. Steve Jobs wore the same clothes every day. I mean, how do we criticize that? He had five or seven copies of the same shirt and the same pants because he didn't want to waste brain space on decisions as menial as what to wear. Have you ever seen a woman do that yet? I've been doing that. I have been (laughs) evolving into being that person. Yes. Well, and I do it also with my meals. I make my breakfasts and my lunches for the week every Sunday. And so I have seven breakfast shakes and seven lunch trays. And they're the exact same thing every day because I don't want to spend energy thinking about that. My nutrition is all plotted out. I have an app. I know what I'm eating. I know how many calories. I know my macros. Like I make the decision once. I call this a meta decision. It's a decision about decision making. I make the decision once and I'm done. And I'm fine with that. I believe that. There are fewer decisions you can make. You can leave your brain power for other things. So the people with brain-based conditions could benefit from this as a strategy to simplify the number of decisions they have to make in a day. And back to the idea of parenting, I think it's more common that your child is going to think differently than you, whether it's something you could define as a brain-based condition or a neurodiversity or not. People have different personalities. People have different systems. People have different ways of being creative. And so one of the things that I've found in when you're asserting a system for a child, for an employee, for a teammate, for anybody, if you just explain why this piece of it is important, then people will, the phrase I used earlier was core competencies. People will hit the core competencies if you really define what they are and if you explain why it needs to be this way. I recently worked for the election. I signed on to run a polling place. And I told my teams in advance, what were the reasons behind some of the rules? So a really small example, and this was multiplied by dozens of other examples. When I said, you don't say the person's full address, they show you their ID and you say, do you still live on Park Place? You don't say, do you still live at 121 Park Place for their privacy because you're saying it out loud. Oh, okay. But if I had just said, you're doing it wrong, you only say the street name, people's natural tendency is to ask why. They want a reason for the rule. And my belief is that you will get much more cooperation and much more creativity if you explain, well, here's the rule that exists. Here's the strategy that I recommend. Here's the reason. If you can come up with another way to do it that satisfies this reason, then go for it. Exactly. Love it. So we've touched on a little bit. You used the word empathy a couple of times in talking about what you want to have when working with clients like this and interacting with people in general, I think. 
what else should an organizing or productivity professional look to have in their skill set, in their nature, and the way they show up when wanting to work very well and supportively with this community? Well, there are some other traits that I can think of. Being humble about people's ability to come up with their own solutions. And I think that humility comes with confidence. Over time, when you realize that, yeah, you really do know a lot foundationally, you know a lot theoretically, and whatever new challenge this client brings, you are going to be able to come up with a way to give them some guidance, some input that's going to help them to take the next step. So all of that, it comes with experience. It can kind of be taught. It can definitely be identified. If you're coming in with the idea that you're going to tell people what to do, that your way is the right way and the best way. And so you're just going to teach everybody to do it the way you do it. That is something that I discourage. And at the same time, I empathize with people who come into the industry with that mindset because it's often instilled from media, from television, from images that we've gotten from culture about what organized is and what a professional organizer is. I hope that I live a really long time and never again have to see a video of a professional organizer ripping something out of someone's hands. That needs to never happen again. And it needs to never happen in private either because that's not respecting the client's autonomy, their freedom of choice. So there are a lot of trait type words that I actually use in my course in the brain-based conditions track. My course is on ethics and policies when you're working with clients with brain-based conditions. And so I talk about things like respecting a client's autonomy, respecting their dignity, and blending that all in with how you create an ethical practice. Empathy is one of the core tenets of all of that. And empathy is something that people can develop regardless of profession, regardless of anything at all. How do people do that? If they recognize that, oh, I could use a little more empathy and compassion, the acting out of that empathetic feelings. Do you have anything you recommend that people do to explore that? Seek out people who are different from you in however you define different. And if their difference scares you a little bit, all the better. So people talk about how social media is so divisive and how people just get into screaming matches trying to entrench their own position. It can also be a sandbox for us to work on empathy. And you don't have to say it out loud and get your friends all riled up and how dare you agree with someone who disagrees with us. And But you can read an article from say, a news outlet that does not have your bias of liberal or conservative. And just read that article and try to see where people are coming from. It's safe to do this. It's not going to harm you. It's not going to brainwash you. It's going to help you to understand where another person is coming from. So I have a site that I follow called All Sides, and it shows media reports about the same incident in the world from left, right, and center perspective. And I often read the left, right, and center perspective just to see what does this look like coming through another filter. And it does help me to at least to understand intellectually where someone is coming from, what would cause them to arrive at a different conclusion than me based on the same facts, based on the same input. And that's something that we really need in order to work with our clients and not just 
ride roughshod over them and say, well, just use this box and use that label. And if you just do it, then you should be fine. If you would just, if you hear yourself saying, if you would just, or you should, because you're doing (laughs) it wrong. If you're shooting all over your clients, you're doing it wrong. I have an idea that I use myself and I've been using with clients that might be useful in this conversation as well to drive up empathy when you're sort of frustrated with someone to hold on the belief that they're doing their best. What if they're doing their best and this is their best. And then to imagine them. And I have this, I do this with myself. I even have a picture. I have to yet hang it in my new place, but of me as a three-year-old, because as a three-year-old, you can look at that energy. We haven't become inhibited. We haven't, hopefully we're still curious and we light up and we're following our instincts. And if you think of someone, you have a challenge or that you might be rubbing you the wrong way, or you don't understand thinking of them in a youthful way before being curious about what's their history. What is it in their history that brought them to this place? What are their pain points? Yeah. What have they been through? And so it's sort of a goal to walk in the other person's shoes and envision them as someone who's just doing their best. And if this is their best, you can't be angry when someone's doing their best. I mean, you can, you're entitled to be angry, but at least you'll understand if you do give someone the grace of assuming that they're doing their best, then yes, that should generate some patience. And depending on your role with that person, it's going to determine how you continue to respond. So if you're the productivity professional and you're frustrated because you've shown this client all your best tricks and they're still not changing, well, okay, instead of trying to push harder, sit back and ask yourself and even better ask the client, what is happening that's preventing the change? What we've talked about is that you want to make this change and you've told me that that's what you want to do. And it's not happening and we've put effort into it. So I'm not blaming you that you haven't changed. I'm curious about it. What do you think is getting in the way? Let's see if there's another angle that we can look at. And it's not your fault and it's not my fault. There's no fault. But the thing that we're here to do together is to help you to make the change that you want to make. So what can we do differently here? There's another thing that I can add to your idea of imagine that people are doing their best. There's, you've probably heard of this, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I will often look at that and just kind of look at a person's behavior and ask myself, where are they in Maslow's hierarchy right now? Are they stable with shelter and security? Are they stable with their physiological needs? Are they stable in getting what they need from others emotionally? And that can look like, if somebody cuts you off on the road, I mean, I don't do this perfectly. Sometimes I'll be like, rah, you're a jerk. But sometimes I'll say, I'll bet she really has to pee. Go, go, sister. This is a wonderful example, but also a reflection of the state that we're in when we come across somebody or a situation that's challenging. I said, I shouldn't be tired, I shouldn't be hungry, and I shouldn't have a couple of glasses of wine if I'm going to be articulating things at my best. So thinking not only of your client's state of mind, but what's your state of mind before you embark on working and supporting someone else? We have a big responsibility to be grounded and centered and show up as our best selves to be able to provide that, I call it the hand at your back. This is your vision and I'm the hand at your back to help you get there. I love that. You said, if we're not getting there, what's getting in the way? 
That's wonderful. We are running out of time. So I wanted to just recap on first, I heard empathy, compassion, curiosity, patience. Those are all things that I think organizers and productivity professionals can hold dear in how they want to show up. If somebody wants to really build skills and avoid causing harm by stepping into this space and really supporting a good chunk of the population, what can you recommend and what should be avoided? We'll finish with this big question. And this is a really important question because in our industry, we don't yet have university level curricula around this. We don't have degree programs. We don't have licensure where presumably you take a formal education, you get some sort of license, you work under supervision for a while, and then you work independently and that's reasonably safe. We don't have any of that in organizing and productivity. So I recommend that you create that for yourself as much as possible, particularly if you want to work with clients for whom the stakes are really high. And I will say, I say this, I drive it home pretty dramatically in my ethics course. So be prepared if you take that course, but with clients with brain-based conditions, we are in potentially life or death territory. The things that we say or do, the things that we don't say and don't do can have life or death consequences for our clients. And so if you want to get into working with clients who hoard, clients who have disorders that include psychosis, clients who are fighting addiction, yeah, you don't take this on lightly. You need to have the integrity to seek out education as much as you can find. And there is a lot of it within NAPO. There's also a lot of it within the Institute for Challenging Disorganization. So seek out that education, get yourself educated, do certifications if you want to, those are available as well. Do a lot of reading of scholarly literature of credible sources. Do a lot of talking with your peers. It's important to have peer relationships so that you have perspective other than just your own Too often, because we work as individuals, we're lone wolves, we're in our own echo chambers of our own minds. So we don't have a way of knowing whether we're being effective with clients. Clients will often say, you're great, you're amazing, this is so fantastic. But they're responding to whether they like us. They don't have a way of measuring whether we are being effective. And in the industry, we don't really have a way of quantifying our effectiveness Before and after pictures, by the way, are not a credible way of quantifying our effectiveness. So it's education, it's peer interaction. And when you're going into risky territory, it's supervision. We can bring in a model of supervision. And what I mean by that, it's not what it sounds like in general parlance of employment supervision. I'm talking about working with someone who has the expertise that you want to grow into and who can give you feedback on how you're doing the work that you're doing. So you might hire someone who is more veteran than you to have consultations with them. And you talk about client cases. You do this with confidentiality, but you say down to the nitty gritty. Well, I'm working with Sally this week. Here's what we did this last time. Here's what I think I'm going to do next time. Here are the things that I ran into that were problems. Here are the techniques that I used. And that person who is your supervisor, again, not in the employment sense, but in a mentoring sense, can give you feedback and say, okay, how did that one work out? Because that raises a little bit of a flag for me. Okay, Sally received it well. Okay, great. Oh, that one didn't land right. Okay, let's break that down and figure out why. Mentorship sounds like a rich avenue, no matter what you're trying to learn. And it's something I didn't avail myself of 
when I first started out. And it's one of the things I would say everybody um, to do. So And to do it formally and to do it ethically, you need to at least offer to pay the mentor for their time. This is not a, hey, can I pick your brain? Hey, can I have coffee with you one time and get some advice on the fly? We're talking about an ongoing relationship where this mentor is taking some responsibility for guiding you. It's a type of coaching relationship and they're taking a bit of responsibility for how you act professionally and that should be compensated. Yeah, you get what you pay for. (laughs) So, well, this has been a really rich discussion. I like to close out all of the episodes with next best steps that somebody who's just lit on fire with this, this sounds so riveting and I want to do something more. We just talked about a breadth of things, but if you could pick one or two things and your course comes to mind, if, I don't know if that could be a next best step, but if you could guide us in one or two things that someone could do, short little sound bites of one or two things they could do to really kick off some progression in this career. My course within the brain-based conditions track is just one of, gosh, there are a lot. I think we developed six new courses and then there are others that have also been tagged into that track that were pre-existing. So look at the brain-based conditions track of courses within NAPO. And a second suggestion would be look at everything that the Institute for Challenging Disorganization has to offer. That is a really nutrient-dense place to find guidance for people in the organizing and productivity industry specific to working with clients with brain-based conditions. So NAPO courses, the brain-based conditions track, and everything that ICD has to offer. Fabulous organization. I was a member for many, many, many years at the beginning of my career too, absorbing course after course after course. And they continue to pull thought leaders and researchers who are really on the forefront of research and understanding what we're dealing with and really provide really great quality education. So Debbie Stanley, thank you for such a riveting conversation. Thank you to everyone who joined us for this episode. I wish you a great couple of weeks until the next one and hope that this has been a useful tool in helping you build a better business. Take care, everyone. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.